You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. So who can, um, and this is an interactive time, so I'm going to ask a question as I'm actually looking for feedback here. In one or two sentences, who can tell me what it means to be canceled? What does it mean to be canceled? One or two sentences. Shunned. Shunned. Someone turned their back on you? Shut down. Shut down. Interesting. Okay. No other thoughts? Are you just really quiet or? No longer needed. No. Interesting. No longer needed. I like that. No longer relevant. Okay. Rejected. Rejected. Really good words. I asked for one or two sentences. I'm getting words. So that's even briefer. So here's, here's what I put together. So here's my definition. It's a modern form of ostracism directed toward an individual, a group, or an organization because of their words or actions are considered inappropriate. That's my definition. So, and synonyms for that would be another ways of looking at, or some of the words we use here is boycott. We see this quite often, calls for boycott of this group or that organization. Um, some who use the word shun, somebody use the word shun. It's a good word as well, that it literally is our, our turning our back on or trying to ignore or trying to uh, think. Um, but what's interesting is when, when we think of this word canceled, I mean, we, we have it today, it's kind of more this idea of a cancel culture. And so we have this going on. We tend to think of it as a more of a modern idea or um, a recent phenomenon. But in fact, the idea of being canceled has been around since essentially the beginning of time. Um, I don't know if it can actually go all the way back to Adam and Eve, but it goes back pretty much to the very beginning. Part of it, what makes it different or why I think it's more prominent today is just the advancement of communication. And it used to be that if you did something bad, I mean, it was just maybe your neighbors knew about it. You know, you know th- think back to the 1800s or something. You know, people around, maybe your town or village knew about it, but it was pretty isolated, okay? Today, you say something or do something, someone on the other side of the world is on Twitter telling anyone who will listen to cancel you and avoid you, neglect you. And so it's just the volume of noise and the extent of how far-reaching the communications can go and how quickly things can happen is why it's such a, why it's so, the feeling is just so um, uh, sometimes overwhelming today. But again, the, can, the idea of practicing or the practice of canceling people has been around for thousands of years. In fact, we see evidence of it in the Bible. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter seven, Israelites are getting ready to go into the promised land and God, God, identifies seven people groups, seven specific tribal groups. And he says this in Deuteronomy 7, make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. That's pretty bad when God cancels you. Jesus felt the wrath of religious leaders because he hung out with and he even ate with those who'd been canceled by the religious leaders. He hung out with sinners and tax collectors. And then Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing to the church, the group of people that are in the city of Corinth, to the Christians there, and he identifies a specific man. 
that he had been doing some immoral things and his behavior, he was not listening, he was not changing, not willing to change. So Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, Christians shouldn't even eat with a person who claims to be a Christ follower yet lives lives contrary to Christ's word. So Paul even says, basically, he's canceled. Have nothing to do with him, turn your back on him. So again, the idea of being canceled has been around forever. Now we're currently working our way through the New Testament book of James. Now what's um, ironically over the centuries, um, there have been many who have wanted to cancel the book of James. Uh, It's an interesting uh, conversation. If you look at just some of the history of it, it took almost 400 years after it was written for the, the letter, the James letter to actually be accepted as part of the New Testament. Even though it was one of the first ones written, it was one of the last ones actually accepted as, yes, this is part of our New Testament canon, is the word they look to it. Um, historically, he had some real famous uh, uh, scholars and theologians like Martin Luther and some others who just criticized it and said, yeah, we don't like it. <clears throat> we should cancel it. Um, what's interesting is that most of the disapproval hinges on two verses. There's two verses that are both in the passage we're going to read this morning are what a lot of this stuff hinges on. So um, as I read the passage, you have an assignment. I want you to listen to what's being, or, or to read or follow along, and I want you to determine what are the two passages that are so controversial that cause others to say, no, we can't accept this, we need to actually cancel and reject uh, this particular passage. So we're again, we're in James chapter two this morning. I'm going to be starting with verse 14. Now you'll notice on the screen, they actually have the verse, the numbers right there. Um, I don't know if you can see that. If you, if you have a device, you're looking. Um, so as we're reading, make note of the verse. So that when I come back, I sorry, what, what, what are the two verses? You can say, oh, it was this verse or that verse. Okay, so that your assignment is, what are the two verses you think that are the most controversial that would cause some to actually want to cancel the book of James? Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? 
As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Let's pray. Father, uh, these next uh, uh, moments that we're together and as we dig a little deeper into this passage, uh, Father, we're conscious of the fact that for some, there's some really controversial um, thoughts and ideas that are being conveyed there. Lord, I ask that you'd help me to um, work through that and help us, Father, to understand what it is that you're wanting to say to us today. Not just that we can understand what James was saying, but that we could understand and make application in our own life, Father, in a way that would be pleasing to you. And so, Lord, we commit uh, this time we have left it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, which of the two verses do you think are the most controversial? Thank you. <laughs> 14 and 17. So I have verse 14. Anybody else who thinks verse 14 was? Okay. 14 definitely was. 17, well, let me, let, me ask, let me read it here. So 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? And 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Anyone else? Your thoughts? The last one? which is verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Any other thoughts? There's no trick questions. There's a lot here. So why would some of these be controversial? What's in your thoughts? You've identified some of them. Cameron, you identified too. What were your thoughts? Why would these be controversial? They contradict, they seem to contradict what Paul says in almost all of his letters. Now we know that Paul is the hero. I mean, it's so interesting in this time period, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was the key figure. Paul was off on his missionary journeys. Paul wasn't even in the country. But today we hold, and, and for the years and for within the very short time after this time period, Paul was looked at as the authority. And we have a whole lot that we can identify as, you know, from Paul's letters. He was very prolific in his writing. We, and he was very clear in, about what he says. And Paul's theme was, we're saved by grace through faith. That's, we see that extensively in here. So James is making a number of statements that seem to contradict that. Verse 14 in particular, and I, I agree, Cameron, this is one. It says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? And then he has this question, can such faith save them? Now, the way that's framed that we know to James, the answer to that question is no. Their faith can't, such faith can't save them. So it's possible to understand what he's saying there is that faith with no deeds means that you're not saved which again is a very direct contradiction of Paul. He says in Ephesians, in one of his letters, particularly Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. I mean, that seems almost just night and day as far as just what's being said there. So this is a problem. Now an even bigger problem in my mind is verse 24. 
um, that one uh, that uh, no one mentioned, but in verse 24, he says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And what we again just read um, from Paul and also what Paul says in Galatians, he says, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So again, there just seems to be this contradiction. So how are we to understand James in light of Paul? Do they contradict? Are they at odds with one another? I think that they don't contradict one another, but I, is like most everything else in life, context is everything. Context is everything. So we know that, that, um, <clears throat> that James was written first, um, but we do know that Paul, before he wrote a lot of his letters, was traveling. And that the message of grace and what he was preaching was being received in pretty far reaching, pretty, um, um, the extent was pretty well. So when Paul talks about works, talk about we're saved by grace, not by works. Paul is ref always referencing the Old Testament law of Moses. And, to the, and again, James's writing is a Jew writing to Jews. And so they understood the place of the Old Testament law. That is the means of salvation. You followed the law. That was how we identified. That was their identity. And so everything revolved around the law. So when Paul says we're not saved because of Jesus Christ, we're no longer obligated to the law. We're saved by grace through faith. He's re that's what he's in referencing to. When James talks about works or deeds or things, those kind of behaviors, he's not referencing the Old Testament law. He's talking specifically about acts of kindness and mercy that we show one another. So Paul, again, in his writing was countering the argument that you had to follow the law to be saved. So that's what the context Paul was writing what happened though over time, as his words became known and understood, people took that to an extreme. And so, all right, I'm saved by faith through grace. Well, I believe I'm saved. I can do whatever I want now. Anything goes, I'm good. James was speaking to that group. He wasn't talking about the Old Testament law. He was speaking to the people who said that I can do whatever I want and there's no price to pay. There's no consequences. That's what he was talking to. Paul, in talking about the Old Testament law of Moses, denies the need for pre-conversion works. In other words, he denies the need for you to have good behavior and then you can be saved. That's what he's talking about. James, on the other hand, emphasizes the absolute necessity of post-conversion kindness and acts of mercy. So again, when you understand the context of who they were writing to and why they were writing and the means by which they were writing, you realize that, yes, it does sound like they're contradicting each other, but they're talking about literally two different things. So that's how we want to understand uh, the book of James. Now, in your worship guide, <clears throat> in the sermon outline, there's a statement that says these verses uh, in James are not a contrast between faith and works. They're a contrast between true faith and false faith. I would like to frame it a little bit differently. Now we know that faith generates transformation, that when we come to faith, we're to become more like Christ. And we all know that, that there's something that happens in us instantly, but we also know that that transformation isn't complete. I mean, I didn't wake up this morning, hey, I'm done, I'm arrived, I'm just like Jesus. Um, that didn't happen, that there's a process that's ongoing. So what James is saying, though, that if you're not being changed, 
Are you really a disciple? Are you really who you claim to be? So instead of contrasting true faith with false faith, I'm wondering if better might be to ask this question, what is the evidence of a transforming faith in your life? What is the evidence of a transforming faith? So with that in mind, then what is James saying in these verses? I think there's three things that we can point to. I think the first thing is that a true or transforming faith is more than what we say. In verses 14 to 16, he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Both verses 14 and 16, verbal statements are made. That in verse 14, there are claims to have faith, which basically there are claims to say that I'm a follower of Jesus. In verse 16, the idea of go in peace, keep warm, well-fed, which is interesting, these are words of blessing. I mean, these are actually good things to say. These are, I'm hoping for the best in you. They're actually being nice uh, to the people they're talking to. In both cases, the right words are being said. Good things are being said. I have a, um, uh, was a, a, in high school, he and I, uh, a friend uh, in high school, really haven't kept in touch, but uh, too much, but uh, he became a pastor as well. So both of us have been in pastoral ministry, you know, pretty much all our lives. It wasn't uh, too long ago I went back and visited and I had lunch with him. And I noticed that every time he met someone, and, and a, we were actually having lunch at a restaurant, and uh, one of his congregants was there, and so there was a quick chat. And at the end of the conversation, he ended the conversation with, love you, man. Um, well, that's kind of interesting. Um, but I began to notice that he ended every conversation that way. He told everyone, I love you, I love you. He stands, and we went actually, we went home, Bessie and I went home for uh, one year, went for Christmas a few years ago. And so it was a Christmas Eve service that we were there. And so he stood at the back and everyone's leaving, you know, they have to pass through that door. And to every person, he ended, I love you, I love you, I love you, and I love you. Um, Now, in no way am I trying to question his motives or even his sincerity. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying he was being insincere. However, when you're on the other end receiving that and you realize that they come a dime a dozen, it loses its significance and impact that the sentiments sound a bit hollow, don't they? It just doesn't quite, ugh. I get it and I appreciate the sentiment, but do you really love me? Or is this just kind of a phrase you've adopted and are saying? James is saying here in this passage that if you say you have faith and you say the right things, but don't show acts of kindness and mercy, you have nothing of value. You have nothing of value. You may as well have no faith at all, is what he's saying. And the fact of the matter is we can say the right thing, but unless there's evidence that what we say changes how we live, we're actually deceiving ourselves. So one of the things I think James is telling us is that true or transforming faith is more than what we say. I think another thing we can learn from this passage is that true or transforming faith is more than what we believe. Verses 18 and 19 read, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. 
Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Notice that he didn't say, um, in verse 19, he didn't say, you believe in God. He said, said, you believe there is one God. Now again, he is Jewish, writing to Jews. There's a very specific thing there. What he's saying then here, that's in reference to the Jewish prayer, the Shema. Have you ever heard, you're familiar with that? Have you heard that? Comes directly from Deuteronomy chapter six. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So when James is talking here, he says that you believe that there is one God. He's referencing this prayer. Now, this prayer is actually a big deal. It's the observant Jews, even today, consider the Shema to be the most important part of prayer within their faith. That they recite it twice a day as part of their religious commitment. And that it's traditional for parents to teach their children to say the Shema before they go to bed every night. So this is integral to how they understand and the relation of their faith and how they understand God. And this is what James is saying. Again, he's he's a Jew talking to Jews. They're familiar with the traditions. They find great comfort and security and knowledge of and keeping the the traditions of their ancestral fathers. That's just part of their history. They memorize the Torah. The men in particular. So this was, this was very known. What he was saying there, he was touching on something that all of them identified with immediately. They knew the Torah and now they know Jesus. They knew it all. The way James is writing here, you almost get the sense that the people were feeling a little bit big of themselves. There's some arrogance there. That they knew everything. That they knew excuse me, back uh, before Christ that they knew about the law and they understood it and now they know about Jesus and they can recite it, they can tell it. They knew everything they needed to know. And in one breath, James pulls the rug out from underneath them. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. In other words, their belief in God isn't able to save them. So don't think so highly of yourself just because you believe the right things. According to James, you could believe the right things. You could say the right things. You could have the correct opinion about all things related to COVID. You could have the solution to peace in the Middle East. And you could even have the ability to get Congress to work together to solve all the problems. You could have all of that. But if you don't demonstrate mercy and kindness to others, you've got nothing. So a true transforming faith is more than what we say. It's more than what we believe. And lastly, I think a true transforming faith changes how we live. The last section, uh, seven verses there, 20 through 26, James refers to Abraham and Rahab um, as examples of people who were considered righteous before God. Not because of who they were or what they believed, They were considered righteous because of their obedient actions before God. For James, transforming faith and deeds are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. In order for faith to mean anything, there must be a change in our behavior. Just saying that we're a Christ follower doesn't make us a Christ follower. For James, our faith is revealed by what we do. 
Our actions are the tangible expression of our faith. And if your life is not of benefit to others, what good is it? For James, our faith is proved through the actions of our lives. Like Abraham and Rahab, our actions prove what's really in our hearts. We can say the things, we can say the right things, but what we do actually reveals what's in us and it proves if our words are true. For James, our faith is shared by our good deeds. Now, Jesus conveyed the same idea in Matthew chapter five when he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. So even with Jesus, there's a connection between what we believe, what we say, and what we do. If you, <clears throat> Some of you may have heard this analogy or heard this before, but there's a question there that if you were accused of being a Christ follower, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Now, you can't defend yourself with words. <clears throat> so you can't say, well, yes, because I believe I have faith, you know, this, I believe in faith, you know, so you can't defend yourself. All they're looking at is your behavior, your actions, what you do. Would there be enough evidence to convict you? Now remember, good works are not the cause of our salvation. They're evidence of our salvation. In 1937, it goes back a few years, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, he wrote uh, uh, the book called The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer was German, a pastor uh, living in Germany who opposed the Nazis with his writings and it cost him his life. Um, he, ended up, uh, he ended up being killed, I believe in one of the, the concentration camps. Um, <clears throat> but in this book, The Cost of Discipleship, he coined the term cheap grace. And you may have heard that used before. Bonhoeffer was the first one to use that or to reference that. And the idea behind it is this, people want all God has to offer. We want all the best, including eternity. You know, we want that, that's good stuff. We want all the good stuff, but they want it at no cost to themselves. It doesn't cost them anything. And that's why he's saying that you want grace, but because there's nothing in it for you, it's cheap, it's a cheap grace. In James, Christians naively accepted their idea of cheap grace they showed favoritism, they didn't care, or they tried to justify their actions. They weren't showing kindness or mercy to the poor. They were thinking only of themselves. In fact, uh, it's so bad, or James is so bothered by this. In verse 20, um, he actually refers to the, this kind of person or to these people. He uses the word, you foolish person. The word foolish there, it's not a pity thing. Oh, you poor sap. That's not, that's not that idea. This is, this is actually, the word there, and actually being understood as empty-headed. He insulted them. I mean, it was, not, it was not a pity thing, you know, bless his heart. It was, you emptied, you're brainless, whatever words you want to add on there. It was a huge insult because of what they were trying to accomplish, because of the way they were trying to live their lives. See, we need to understand that grace is free, but it's not cheap. 
Jesus paid for our salvation with his life. And in return, he asks us to surrender our life to him. Not just certain parts that we want to, that we're willing to give up. He wants everything. Jesus wants every area of our life surrendered to him. When we can stop living for ourselves and start living for him. That's what James is talking about. We live for Jesus. We live for others and not for ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, James has some pretty harsh words and some things that are, are very challenging as all of us look at our lives. And um, Father, I'm convinced no one here would intentionally want to be deceitful in their life. That, but Lord, as I understand, every one of us want to be genuine in our faith and our life for you. And But I'm also conscious, Lord, as, as we look at our lives, we're all busy. We've all got things that are going on. And um, Father, sometimes it's been my experience that what you're asking us to do isn't obvious. It doesn't come across as, um, hey, this is, this is a, something directly from you. Lord, sometimes it comes across as an interruption into my day. It's an inconvenience or a hardship in my plans. And Father, I suspect the same is true for others that we, um, we say we want to live for you. We say the right things and we're genuinely sincere, but when something happens in the midst of our day or in the midst of our week, we're very quick to turn our back and to keep going, uh, sometimes even pretending we didn't see it. Father, my prayer is that we would, uh, we'd be convicted of that. Lord, that when those inconveniences or those interruptions or those things that would trouble us, uh, when we encounter these, Father, that we would pause and literally ask ourselves, is this from you, the Lord? Is this from God? Is this something I need to do? Is this my opportunity to show kindness and mercy to someone else? And Father, may we have the courage and the boldness that sometimes that are needed to, to not just verbal give verbal affirmation, but actually take a step, sometimes a step of faith. Father, we know we're not perfect, but Lord, we also know that your desire is for us to become more like Christ. And what we see in Jesus is someone who continually gave of himself. He didn't try to raise an army for his benefit. He didn't try to have political power and wealth and, and those things. He continued to give until he drew his very last breath. So Father, as Christ followers, as those who have determined to live our lives like him, may we follow his example. Lord, give us wisdom and discernment in knowing what's you and what's just might be uh, noise. But Lord, there's a lot of that out there too. Help us to be discerning. Uh, so Lord, again, we just commit ourselves to your purposes, to what you desire to do in us and through us in the days ahead. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, I pray all these things. And everyone says, amen. This week, I'm convinced after a sermon like this, I, I suspect that most, if not all of you, will have something that interrupts your week or interrupts your day. And you're going to have the opportunity to actually show kindness and mercy or to say, oh, I don't have the time or I'd really like to, but 
sometimes those may be genuine, but I also think that there's times where God is saying, wait, 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 wait. No, no, you do have the time. Or you need to rearrange your time. You need to deal with this. When we can do that, when we're able to recognize that God is in the moment and, and shift gears, amazing things can happen. Amazing things can happen. So continue reading the book of James this week. You know, this has been kind of our devotional. There's a reading plan. Um, and so if you're able to continue that, uh, just as we work through this, I think it will just benefit and help you uh, in the days ahead as well. Let's stand for the benediction. <clears throat> Remember, pray together tonight, 6.30. Uh, just a chance for us to listen to what the Holy Spirit might be saying and then a chance to pray. Uh, also, I think it's in your worship guide. I don't know if Jan mentioned it, but uh, this coming week is Grace Track. If you're interested in becoming a member or partner here at Grace Covenant, it's virtual. Um, so you can do it from home and uh, you're able to actually participate. Um, the information should be there in your worship guide. Love for you to, uh, to, uh, to do that if God is leading you in that direction. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.